And when the hour was come, he sat down, and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof, until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, and gave thanks, and said, Take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine, until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread, and gave thanks, and brake it, and gave unto them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Welcome to Choosing a Church, Session 3, here on A Higher Calling, presented by the Avondale Church of God. Okay, so we've gone through choosing the religion of Christianity as opposed to any other religion. We've talked about faith, salvation, sanctification, and water baptism. And there are still a few ordinances, or you could say rituals, that a Christian church needs to practice. These rituals are symbolic, speaking of communion of the bread, cup, washing your brother's feet. And there are standards that are not symbolic, but rather very utilitarian, practical, and also quite compulsory. And that's a hard word to swallow in our day and age of everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. A Christian uses the Bible as their foundation and source of guidance. And these concepts are holiness, which is inclusive of modest living, tithing, and the critical importance of having a pastor to lead the local congregation. Then we'll wrap up this series with the importance of fellowship with other believers and being religiously separate from non-believers. So before jumping into our topic list, I just wanted to have a quick discussion about the Bible stance on religion. So if you're at the lunch table sitting across from your coworker and religion really isn't a topic that comes up all too often right along with politics, uh, maybe safer sometimes to stay away from those discussions, but should it come up uh, or with your neighbor across the street or where, wherever you may happen to be and religion comes up, the question could be asked, well, what religion are you? And I feel like the last couple of sessions of choosing a church um, have really been focused on the fact that people are searching for a church to go to, searching for a place to belong, searching for truth, and that there are a lot of options. However, in terms of the Bible standpoint on religion and choosing a church, there's only two. There's choosing God's church and worshiping God in spirit and in truth, and there's not. And in this bucket of 
non-biblical churches or religion, there are many, many, many options, including some options that call themselves Christian options. And I just thought it was important to kind of start there today and recognize that the Bible only has two choices. But as we socialize and we work in society and as Christians live the Christian life in front of others, that it's important to, to know that they don't think the way the Bible thinks. That this black and white concept of God's way or no way at all doesn't exist for the most part in pop culture and out in society. So I just wanted to spend a minute there to reflect on the Bible stance on religion and that being a Christian is more than just a religious choice, more than just a lifestyle. It is a state of being, a state of being reconciled in your conscience and in your heart and of being justified, being righteous, and in a state that God can be pleased with your worship. So let's start with our to-do list to wrap up with choosing a church series. We know that the Passover meal is a continuation from Jewish traditions where at the actual original Passover, the Jews had to take a lamb that had no blemishes and prepare it a special way, sprinkle the blood of the door frame of their dwelling, and also prepare loaves of unleavened bread to eat. And it was all very symbolic, solemn, and special. Every dwelling that didn't have that blood over their door was visited by the death angel. And the firstborn child in that household was killed. This is still a very emotional thing to talk about, even for Christians, not just Jews. Jesus was the ultimate sacrificial lamb. The Bible doesn't say how often this supper needs to be performed, but what's more important than how often you do it is the spiritual condition of the participant. So, story time again, and this is in reference to participating in the Last Supper rites or communion. Remember the church in Galatia? We spoke about them in session two. Well, they weren't the only church that needed some additional direction, and it's really a good thing because we are in dire need of direction. Paul wrote a couple letters to the church in Corinth because they were having problems too specific to this communion. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 speaks of this in verses 24 through 31. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, 
this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. So, in these first three verses, Paul was refreshing why they were doing the Passover ritual. Then he explained what it was all about. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. Partaking of the Passover meal, or communion, is a ritual that Christians perform together, eating a meal together in fellowship, as a symbol of what Jesus' sacrifice has already done for us. Paul wanted each individual worshiper to examine their own heart condition and make sure that they had a clean conscience before God before they practiced this ritual, not only because of the hypocrisy element of hidden sins, but also the fellowship element of breaking bread together, combined with the importance of the ritual in historic context of the blood of the sacrifice saving the inhabitant from death. Unworthy is reference to having unforgiven sins, a guilty conscience, while partaking of the bread and fruit of the vine, and not just in ignorance. How many people show up to church having never read the scripture, and the preacher or priest does not open their Bible and preach prior to the event? Maybe most. How many churches hold the Calvinist doctrine of not requiring repentance for sin if you at least prayed the sinner's prayer at some point once in your lifetime? How many churches hold infant baptism as good enough to cover any sins that you might do throughout your life? Seriously, this topic of choosing the right church is extremely important and very relevant. God is very merciful, but a willfully ignorant person, if there even is such a thing, has much less protection, perhaps none, than a completely ignorant person. And again, we've already mentioned the only disclaimer to religious responsibility is ignorance and lack of culpability. Don't presume upon the mercy of God if you know better. The Bible is very clear on this topic. Romans 6, 1-6. through 6, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ 
were baptized into his death, therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Okay, so moving right along here. A lesser practiced ritual is feet washing. Yes, this is in the Bible as well. And if you are going to choose a Christian church, it will have Christian rituals. And as the word Christian means a follower of Christ, or Christ-like, then we can't leave this one out. John chapter 13, Jesus gets a towel, wraps it around his waist, gets some water, and begins to wash the disciples' feet. Peter and Jesus have a dialogue, because he didn't want Jesus to do it. And Jesus says, look, if you don't want this done to you, then leave. And of course, Peter reverses his position and says, okay, okay, well, if it's that important, then wash my hands and my head too. And Jesus said, you know, basically calm down. I just need to wash your feet. So let's read in John chapter 13, 12 through 15. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me master and Lord, and ye say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. And so one might think, well, Jesus was speaking to a specific audience here, the 12 disciples, because in context, that very same conversation included um, the immature topic of whom should be the greatest. And Jesus was responding to that with this exercise in humility. Well, so it may be, but this picking and choosing of what's required and what's not required needs to be led primarily by inspiration of God. And if Jesus instructed the disciples to wash one another's feet, and the quote specifically says, for I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. So it is good for all Christians. Because which of us never struggled with a carnal, holier-than-thou attitude before? And salvation and sanctification changed our nature. Feed washing is an excellent opportunity to show subservience one to another. Washing feet was, and still is, in some traditions, very much a gesture of hospitality, and is a great way to express to each other that no single person is more important than the next. This ritual is perhaps less formal than the bread and fruit of the vine, and means something entirely different than water baptism, and in practice, typically, the congregants will separate by gender to preserve modesty, get a basin of water, and more or less do exactly what Jesus did, wash one another's feet. So we are going to switch gears 
and talk about holiness. So in the religious world, religious conversation today, there are churches that could be categorized as holiness churches or holiness teachings. And again, this kind of discussion about holiness, religion, um, or non-holy religions doesn't really exist, so to speak, uh, in terms of God's perspective. You either have an attribute of God of being holy, pure, washed from sins, or you don't. The very fact that there are Christian options today that don't preach of holiness is really a concern. So looking to the Bible, Luke chapter 1, 67 through 79. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware unto our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the dayspring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. So this audience goes out to a global audience, and we know that there are many different traditions and social norms in every country, on every continent across the globe. What is common ground, however, is holiness. This has always been a theme and attribute of God. Even when the word holiness was stamped on the mitre that Aaron wore on his forehead back in Exodus, all throughout time, this word is inclusive of everything that is pure, clean, honest, well-behaved, etc. Visually, a Christian can be spotted, located, because their outward appearance is holy. When you get to know a Christian, it is apparent that holiness is not just on the outside, but also a characteristic of their heart. Where I live, it's common in a Christian church to wear a suit and tie when we attend services. In other cultures, the clothing standard is much different. And actually, in Jesus' day, they didn't even have slacks and button-up shirts, or even dresses and skirts for that matter. So it's less important about the cut of clothing than it is what the clothing does. A Christian church should still preach the doctrine of wearing modest apparel. This comes from 1 Timothy chapter 2, 
the word modest means orderly or moderate. So in your social circles, wherever you happen to live, a Christian is not loud and proud. A Christian covers their body with enough clothes, just like when God looked at Adam and Eve's attempts to cover their nakedness with leaves and provided animal skins instead. 1 John 2, 15 through 17, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And this covers a lot of ground. Because social norms are always changing, it's very important to have that personal relationship with God. Trust me, if you wear something that shows too much skin or wearing it for the wrong reason to draw attention to your body, your conscience does let you know about it. The intent of the Old Testament concept still applies to New Testament standards. God wanted men and women genders to look different back then and still does today. Deuteronomy 22 and 5. The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God. And when Jesus died on the cross and the law was fulfilled, this concept didn't go away. The word modest, which we spoke to earlier, means moderate, um, allows for changing and differing social norms and customs from place to place. But God made people, biologically, all the same, everywhere. And there are some basic biologic differences between men and women that are not going to change from culture to culture. Men should look like men, and women should look like women. And whether you are a man or a woman, your body needs to be sufficiently covered so that you aren't attracting lustful attention to yourself. And that's going to limit what activities you may be able to participate in. That is the sacrifice that a Christian willingly offers. Hair coverings and clothing types. The Jewish laws had all manner of rules about clothes. The New Testament doesn't have those standards, even the hair covering. Some very conservative churches still have their women or men or both wear hair coverings, but that's left over from tradition, not New Testament standards. Some very conservative churches also have rules about the color of clothes. Again, those aren't New Testament standards, and there's actually very little in the New Testament about colors measurements, amount of cloth, cut, and style. There is one about hair, which we'll review. 1 Corinthians 11, 14, 15. Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. This plainly reads that men will cut their hair short enough to not look like a woman and a woman will have long hair. How long? As long as God will let it grow. Over time, hair falls out, changes color, but a Christian will leave it alone. 
you don't like your looks? Well, God made you perfect. And if you are good enough for God, a dedicated life to God can handle that pretty well. Consider your motivations for wearing clothes or a particular hairstyle. And that's the idea of what modesty gets at. A church that has problems holding a clothing standard is going to have problems in many other areas because the motivations for relaxing the standards in any one particular area are definitely connected with relaxing standards in other areas. And that's how the religious category of Christianity got so congested with all types and flavors of churches. So we'll uh, switch gears here to choosing the right church to attend and that there are many bad options, but only one good option. So Bible basics here. Jesus is referred to often as a bridegroom. And at some point, Jesus is going to come back to earth and collect his bride, which the Bible teaches us is his church. The prophet Isaiah had a prophecy about religious corruption in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 1, And in that day seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat of our own bread, wear our own apparel, only let us be called by thy name to take away our reproach. This is amazing that hundreds of years before Christ would come, that a prophet would bring forth the idea that churches would want to have their own individual doctrines and standards and want to be independent from Jesus's teachings, but still want to be known as God's church. Some of the biggest churches in terms of membership worship people and worship idols every time they hold mass or attend church, but they want to be known as the universal church. That, that's astonishing. Then there are other churches, I mean, in direct competition, use the same founding documents, similar idols, similar teachings, and don't provide the means necessary to live a holy life. And then the community churches open their doors for social purposes, and, and that's fine. But they do it in the name of religion. Bibles aren't used. Pop culture is encouraged. And God's name is used in vain. If your community wants to get together for a picnic every weekend, um, please do so. But let's not call it church. Because all too often, people don't know the difference anymore. Tithing is another principle that is older even than the law of Moses supersedes the law and is still a Bible fundamental concept in the New Testament as taught to us in Hebrews. God has a system that provides for the leadership of the local congregation who work full-time at pastoring. There's a system of offerings that care for those who are unable to provide for themselves. Don't you want to find God's church? Of course you do. And if your sins are forgiven, you are part of God's church. But you say, tell me, in my area, where is that church? Shouldn't we be able to just call out a denominational name? Well, unfortunately, probably not. There are steps that denominations can take to write down every little ritual and control their members to the last degree. But the problem with that is there's a written law again 
Jesus Church doesn't have anything but the Bible. This podcast is presented by the Avondale Church of God, but there are thousands of churches with the name Church of God over the door, and they're going to disagree with the Bible about anything that we've spoken about in these last three sessions, holy living, modesty, spiritual gifts, on and on. So, you know, we can have this discussion about who is God's church and have this competition over territory and people. But that's really not what the Bible's intention is. The Bible says, if you are saved, you are a member of God's church. And then it goes on and it says, fellowship with God's church. So if you are starting a church or are a pastor of a church and praying and looking for direction about what to call your church name or or who to fellowship with, all of those answers are contained in your Bible. 1 John chapter 4, 1 through 6, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world and the world heareth them. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. How much more clear does this need to be? The religious realm is full of spiritual wickedness, and spiritual wickedness needs to be avoided at all costs. You can avoid it you can overcome the motivations that would cause you to settle for less than the best. What happened to the church from the book of Acts? It's still around and always has been. And you can hear some of that discussion in podcast number five. But this chapter here, 1 John 4, was written perhaps before Jesus' church was shattered and split into a million pieces. Today, we have a lot of denominations that preach Jesus in name only and have very little to do with him in their daily lives. They write additional books full of rules and have new prophets every few years that come up with new ways to oppress the people. So what do you do after you've found God's church? How big does a congregation have to be in order to be called a church? Matthew 18, 19, and 20. Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth, as touching anything that they shall ask. It shall be done for them of my Father, which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am I in the midst of them. Don't settle for less than the best. God is faithful to bring you to the right church. At times, it may require you to leave your area or commute farther than you would like. What kind of sacrifice is worth the pearl of great price? Or, what will you give in exchange for your soul? Don't be tempted to attend the church on the corner just because it's convenient. And don't look back. Be in the world, but not of the world. Jesus said, 
that you'll have to burn some bridges. Be polite where you can, loving, kind, and explain your decisions to your friends and family. But if there is a strong pull back to poor decisions because of social influences, you will need to cut some social ties. 2 Corinthians 6, 14-18 Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them, and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. So, what about all the things that weren't mentioned here? I mean, what about all of the minutia about running a church service, and the assignment of roles and responsibilities in the church, or the interpretation of modest clothing, uh, depending on your local culture, God provides a pastor to guide the administration of the congregation. It's an incredibly difficult role, and worthy of much due respect and honor. When God leads you to the right church, you will flourish under the care of the pastor there, as you both stay humble and follow God. The Bible gives the pastor much authority and much responsibility, and the Bible instructs Christians to obey the pastor, considering the end of their conversation or the result of their actions in daily living. We need direction and strong leadership in the pulpits of God's church. Strong men or women that are going to open their Bible and have a servant leadership style, following Christ as the head of his church, We don't need more people who are going to write new versions of Bibles. We don't need someone appointed from a headquarters somewhere. Just people called by God after God's own heart. Well, with that, we'll wrap up this podcast. It's been a real pleasure, and we trust that you found the discussion both challenging and encouraging. Your feedback, discussion, questions, and comments are all welcome. If you have a biblical topic that you might want to discuss, or a prayer request, or just need someone to talk to, please email us at biblestudy at avondalecog.org, and we'll be quick to pray for you, reach out to you with encouraging words, or even get in touch with you depending on your specific situation. As always, thank you for listening, and have a great day. We'll see you next time here at The Higher Calling.